Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. One of the things that I encourage people to do, especially young people, is to memorize the scriptures. I think it is a very important discipline to undertake memorizing the scriptures. Now, I'm not about worshiping the Bible. I don't believe the Bible is equal to God, but I believe the Bible points us to God. It points us to salvation in Christ. And so because the Bible points us to Jesus and because the Bible is God's word, I believe that it helps not only to study it, read it, meditate upon it, but I think it is good to memorize it. Now, I'm not talking about memorizing so we can impress people with our uh, memorization ability. Uh, When we memorize scripture, we're doing two things. Number one, we are conveying that we are serious about God's word. When you memorize something, you obviously are serious about it. And the second reason that I believe it's good for us to memorize scripture is because it nourishes us spiritually. You cannot, it is totally impossible to memorize scripture without it nourishing us spiritually. And so I encourage everybody, all ages, but especially young people, to memorize the scriptures. Even if you may not be good at memorizing things, you can do it. Just start with some of the more simple scriptures. Uh, In the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 16, it's just one verse. It is the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ encapsulated in one brief verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you know that, you can witness to people. Uh, Psalm 23, another uh, passage of Scripture that, that if anybody is memorizing Scripture, they will memorize it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You get in the privacy of your own prayer closet, and you start quoting that scripture back to the Lord. And you cannot not have an experience with God. Once you learn some of those simple passages like John 3.16 and Psalm 23, I encourage young people then to move on to some other psalms. Start with the psalms. They're easier. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, which brings forth its fruit in its season, and its leaf shall never wither, and whatever he does prospers. Not so the ungodly, for they are like the chaff that is driven away by the wind. Therefore, the ungodly cannot stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. What a great, great psalm. And then you can go over to Psalm 100. When I was a kid, we learned two psalms in uh, the, the 
the preschool, Sunday school classes. One was Psalm 23, the other one was Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pastor. Enter His courts with thanksgiving and into His gates with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endures for all generations. It's just a blessing. Your heart leaps as you repeat back to the Lord the word that he inspired. I love the opening verses of the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Holy Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And he divided the light from the darkness. And the light he called day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning We're the first day. Gosh, that's just a blessing to be able to read that. And then you read that and you go over to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, his opening words. And you have to know that as John is writing the opening words to his Gospel, he must have had Genesis 1 in mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. He was in the world, but the world knew Him not. He came to His own, but His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. Who were born. Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of the will of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to encourage you to memorize the Scriptures. You may find yourself in a place sometime when you don't have a Bible to read from, and it'll be those memorized scriptures that have penetrated your heart that will carry you, will carry you when nothing else will. Memorize the scriptures. Which leads me to one of my favorite passages of scriptures to memorize. I love the passage that includes our God question for the day. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him who cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew unto me one of the seraphim having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken from off the altar. And he laid it upon my lips and he said, Lo, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us? There's the God question. Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, tell this people, hearing indeed, but you understand not, seeing indeed, but you perceive not, go to this people, make them fat, make their ears heavy, close their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and they are converted and healed. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for a word that is worth studying, meditating upon, memorizing. Thank you for a word that is worth us adjusting our lives to fit its precepts. Lord, I pray that as you have blessed the reading of your word, will you bless what we say Realizing, Lord, that there's nothing that I'm about to say that is more important nor more significant than what we just read, which is your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody who is old enough has experienced or lived to hear about, read about, or see some historical moment Maybe a national moment, maybe a global moment that was so pivotal and so uh, landmark that it prompts you to say something like this. I remember where I was when, and you complete that sentence with that historical moment. For the youngest of us who are at least... Uh, maybe 11 years old, 12 years old, maybe 13 years old, that statement would go like this. I remember where I was on September the 11th, 2001. How many of you, how many of you know exactly where you were on September the 11th, 2001? For some who are a tad bit older, you may say, I remember where I was on January the 28th, 1986. I remember where I was. I was Uh, Three years out of college, I was uh, almost two years having been married, and I was in the break room of the First National Bank of Atlanta, the Roswell Village Banking Center in Roswell, Georgia. They required that we take a 10-minute break in the morning, a 10-minute break in the afternoon, and a 40-minute lunch period, giving us a total of one hour off during the course of that eight to five day. And it was in one of those break periods I was in the break room. There were other people there. Mostly ladies were in there. There was a lot of talk going on. In the corner of the room, mounted at near the ceiling, was a television. And on the television, the network had broken in to televise the liftoff of the space shuttle Challenger. It had been in the news in particular because... It was the first flight in which there was a civilian, a grade school teacher from New England who was boarding that shuttle, Krista McAuliffe. And we watched it 
Uh, we figured it'd be like any other rocket launch from the Apollo or the Mercury launches. This was the space shuttle and that massive aircraft sat uh, facing up on that platform. And all of a sudden at T minus one liftoff, the, the, the fire started blowing out the engines at the bottom. And then there was smoke that lifted up. And after a few moments, that massive aircraft started to slowly lift off the launching pad 10 seconds 25 seconds, 40 seconds into the air. It was beautiful. It was a blue sky over Cape Canaveral. 50 seconds, 60 seconds, 70 seconds up in the air. There was adrenaline from those who were there at the platform or within three miles of it. The heat just began to blow them back. And then 73 seconds into the flight, one of the most horrific sights was witnessed by literally millions of people around the country when the space shuttle Challenger exploded in air into a million pieces, killing instantly those who were on board. And we watched it, and that break room grew deathly quiet. Time stood still in every break room in America. I remember where I was. Do you remember your earliest... Memory? I mean, the very first memory that you recall. Do you remember it? I remember my first memory. And it was one of those landmark historical moments. It was a Friday. It was a Friday in November. I was um, three, just turned three. I was playing in the living room of the house where I grew up. There was a hardwood floor. Uh, We lived in a simple one-story house with a basement that my grandfather had built for us. I was playing three years old on the hardwood floor. My uh, brother, Tim, was also playing on that floor. He was in, uh, he was barely a year and a half, had on cloth diaper with pins, with blue little uh, uh, captures on the side of them. The cloth diaper pinned on the side, playing just with diaper on. No shirt, no shoes, no socks. Couldn't have gotten into the movie theater. (laughs) He's playing on the floor. I don't even remember what he's playing with. I don't even remember really what I was playing with. At the end of the room, there was a black and white television, and it was on. It was on a program that I... Uh, did not watch, was not interested in. As it turns out, it was a, a soap opera. It was, uh, it was being televised live. It was not recorded for later television. It was being televised live. And prophetically, the title of that soap opera was As the World Turns. If you go out of uh, our living room, there's a double-wide little archway that you go from the living room into the dining room, which is also adjoined to our kitchen. My mother was in the kitchen. She had been cooking something, and she was putting away lunch dishes, washing them. She had an apron on, and she had what I've come to call catwoman glasses. They were dark rim glasses that come up to a point right here, you know. There was something on the stove. I don't know what it was, but I remember the steam would come up over the pot. She had pots that were silver chrome with a a copper bottom to them. And the steam was coming up off the pots. They would come up about a, a foot and a half or two feet, and then it would disappear. At 1.40, 
I don't remember the time. I only know it because I have gone back and looked at it and studied it. At 1.40 in the afternoon, Georgia and South Carolina time, there was an interruption of, as the world turns, there was a man there with kind of slick back hair with recedes like mine, and he had on these thick, dark-rimmed glasses, and his tie was kind of disheveled. They called him Cronkite. And he came on the air, and he said, we interrupt this program to give you this news flash. President Kennedy has been shot. Now, even then, I did not, that did not register with me because I wasn't paying attention to the television. As the World Turns was not my favorite show at three years old. I was a Gilligan lover. (laughs) But I remember it only because as soon as Walter Cronkite said those infamous words, my mother turned the heat down on her gas stove And she came into the living room with her apron on and she sat on the edge of the sofa. That wasn't entirely uh, unheard of for her. Usually she would lean back on and sit fully and completely on the sofa. But she sat on the edge of her seat. I remember that she untied her apron and laid it to the side. And she stayed glued to the television for the next hour. As the World Turns was a 30-minute soap opera. They later went to one hour, but at that time they were 30 minutes. And she sat on the edge of that thing through the rest of As the World Turns and then through the next program that was on. It would not be until 2.38 Eastern Standard Time that that man named uh, Cronkite, (laughs) Walter Concrete, (laughs) cemented his way onto the TV... 2.38, he came back on, he had his thick leather-rimmed glasses, and he said, it is now official, apparently, this from Dallas, newsflash, President John F. Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. He pulled off his glasses and looked up, he said, that would be 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, exactly 38 minutes ago. He put his glasses back on and he tilted them back down as he choked up and started to weep, something we'd never seen uh, from a news anchor in the history of television up to that point. But quickly he composed himself, put his glasses back on, and he said, momentarily, Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson will take the oath of office on Air Force One. And my mother, who had not moved from the edge of her seat, pulled her glasses down, those Catwoman glasses, and she began to cry. And that is why I remember it. I did not like and I do not like for my mother to cry. And she would pick up the apron and she would pat the tears off her eyes, and when we would look up, Tim and I, she would turn away. And I remember where I was in that time of national crisis when our president was brutally assassinated. How many who are here, who are old enough to remember it, how many of you remember anything about where you were when you heard the news that John F. Kennedy had been assassinated. 
If you can think back to that moment, and if you can, in your memory, recapture anything about what you felt, the emptiness, the national sorrow, the mourning that you felt, whether you voted for him or not, you felt a deep sense of loss in our nation If you can recapture that here momentarily, you will have some sense of what Isaiah felt at this time of national tragedy in his life. Because you see, Isaiah's experience here in Isaiah chapter 6 begins in a moment of national crisis. It begins with a crisis Chapter 1, verse 1 lays the foundation in just a brief little phrase in the year that King Uzziah died. Except, unlike our leader, our national leader who had been in office uh, barely three years, the leader of Isaiah's nation, King Uzziah, had been in office for 52 years He was the only leader that many of the folks in Israel had ever known. He was an enormously popular king. The the, the land had known economic prosperity under Uzziah during those 52 years. Isaiah had personally known Uzziah. But it was in a crisis. Now, up to this point... Uh, You have to remember, and I don't think many of us really think about this, up to this point in Isaiah's life, he had not been a godly man. In fact, he had been one of the most ungodly men in his nation. He he was a smut-mouthed sailor type man. He was the type man that every other word was a curse word. If you were a mother with small children, you would not have wanted Isaiah around your children because he would have been a terribly bad example and influence on them. He used so much profanity. He hung around with people who used a lot of profanity. And so Isaiah, in this moment of national crisis, was, I'm sure, feeling, where am I to go? What am I to do? When when something like this happens that pulls the, the rug out from under a nation, the loss of their leader unexpectedly, where do you go? Isaiah wasn't a godly man, but he knew enough to know That whereas nobody else would have the answer to his dilemma, he knew that if there is a God, that God would be the only one who had the answer to the dilemma. And that God, the Jews believed, was found in the temple. And so in that moment of crisis, Isaiah is propelled in his sorrow and by his sorrow into the temple. Where, no doubt, he finds his way to an altar area. And he does what he has not done probably in all of his life. He bows and he tries to seek some sort of resolution, some sort of solace to the crisis in his nation's life. But he didn't expect what he got there. Because the Bible says that he, in his crisis, went to the temple But in that crisis and in the temple, he had a confrontation with God. The scripture says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. He was high and lifted up, sitting upon the throne. And the train of his robe, 
get this. Now, the temple is a huge, huge, massive building, much larger. This sanctuary would fit many times into the inside of the temple in Jerusalem at that time. And yet Isaiah said that the train of God's robe filled, filled the temple. I have seen brides in weddings whose train went from the altar area all the way back to the door, and it was very, very notable, noticeable. But here was God, and the train of His robe not only went to, from the altar to the entrance of the temple, it filled the temple. In his crisis, Isaiah went to the temple where he experienced a confrontation with God. And in this confrontation, he experienced some things about God. The Bible says that that he saw God high and lifted up. His train of his robe filled the temple. And above that train, he says, there were the seraphim. The seraphim were angel-like beings, but, but nowhere else in Scripture do you find beings like these. Normally when we think of angels, we think of, of uh, uh, female-looking characters who have beautiful wings that spread out like an eagle. But these were not like that. They were seraphim. Seraphim is the plural in Hebrew of seraph. And the Bible says that they had three pairs of wings. With one pair, the seraph would cover his eyes. With one pair, he would cover his feet. And with the third pair, he would fly. And the Bible says here that they were chanting one to another. And what they were saying had to do with God. And what they said about God immediately struck, struck Isaiah right in the depths of his heart. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah remembered that as they chanted one to another about God, the posts, those massive columns that adorn the side of the temple that were big around so big around in stone that I couldn't even reach halfway around them and they were solid and went up for probably four stories. And Isaiah remembers that the post of the door moved at the voice of him who cried. You see, Isaiah in his crisis went into the temple where he experienced a confrontation with God in all of his holiness. You see, that's what we want to do here. We talk about connecting with God in this service. A connecting with God is also a confrontation with God. And you can't be confronted with God without being confronted with His holiness. And when we're confronted with God's holiness, all we can do is look at ourselves and realize how unholy we are. Even the best of us, even with all the good, the common good that God puts into almost every person, even that looks like corruption in, the, the, in contrast to the great holiness of God. And so that confrontation with God led to a conviction in the heart of Isaiah. He was convicted of his sin. And what does he say next? He says, then said I, woe is me, I'm undone. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. There's his sin. He's a foul mouth guy. And he says, not only am I a profanity filled mouthed man, but I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. For now mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He was convicted of his sin. And that conviction led to 
or it ought to lead in every person to a confession of that sin. So many times we put off confessing any error on our own part. But for Isaiah, even though he had lived a whole life of ungodliness and, and, and verbal corruption, he was immediate in the confession of his sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. Listen, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 9, if we confess our sin... The Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Isaiah confessed his sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What happens when you confess your sin? What happens when we admit that we are sinners, that we do things that are wrong? If we admit those things to the Lord and we, we uh, lay ourselves before His grace, here's what happens. There is a cleansing that takes place. There's a cleansing. So look at the cleansing in the, in the very next verse. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. The altar was a place where sacrifices were made. The altar is the place where a, 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 a lamb was slaughtered and his blood shed for the sake of the people. And, and it foreshadows the fact that when Jesus came, he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he died on the cross, the altar of the cross. His blood was shed in order to pay for our sin debt. And that seraphim took a live coal from off the altar with the tongs and he laid that coal where? Did he lay it on Isaiah's leg? No. Did he lay it on the top of his head? No. How about on his ears? No. He laid it where the sin was. He laid it on Isaiah's lips where the sin of Isaiah specifically was focused And he said, lo, this has touched your lips. Now your iniquity is taken away and your sin has been purged. He was cleansed. Have you been cleansed? Have you been convicted of your sin and confessed your sin and received the cleansing that comes through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Are you saved? Immediately after being cleansed, we would say saved. Isaiah heard the word of the Lord. He said, I also I heard the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? It was a call. Every child of God, every Christian is called into service. It's not just the preachers or just the pastors or just the minister to children or minister to youth or, or music ministers. They're not the only ones called. Every person in this room Preacher or not, God calls you into service. You say, man, I work on an assembly line. God has called you to that place to be a missionary for God wherever you are. The question is not whether you and I will be missionaries, but how good a missionaries will we be? God has called us. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? This is another place where most of us back off when we start offering excuses the way Moses did. Oh, I can't speak. Oh, I can't stand before the people. Oh, they won't listen to me. Oh, I don't even know your name. Who am I going to tell you? I can't go. Get somebody else. That was what Moses did. But not Isaiah. He was an immediate man. And so in response to this call of God, Isaiah responded with an immediate commitment. Then said, I, here am I, send me. What a great, great response to that great, great 
question. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here am I. Send me, Lord. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand everything about it. But I'll tell you right now, something has just happened to me in this moment of crisis, and I'm ready to go. But God is honest with Isaiah. So many people believe, you know, if I just get saved and if I just give my whole heart into service to the Lord, he'll always protect me. Uh, I, I will never die of anything really, really bad. No accident will befall me. My children will always be obedient. My marriage will always be perfect. I'll never lose my job. I will always get raises every single year. And only good, rosy, beautiful butterfly type things will happen to me if I just follow the Lord. That's not what God told Isaiah. No. In fact, the next verses, if you're just looking at them objectively, are very surprising. Because I would expect after Isaiah says, here am I, send me, God's going to say, all right, then I want you to know I'll be with you and I will give you success in the ministry and I will give you souls for your hire. And these people, they're going to listen to you and you're going to be a great prophet of God because the people are going to listen to you. That's not what he said. He said, I want you to tell, go tell these people. He said, he said, you hear indeed, but you do not understand or will not understand. You see indeed, but you will not perceive. He said, Isaiah, I want you to go make these people fat. And I want you to make their heart, their, their heart, uh, their uh, ears heavy. And he said, I want you to shut their eyes so that, so that they'll, they'll keep from seeing and they'll keep from hearing and it'll keep them from understanding with their heart lest they be converted and be healed. Now, boy, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But after I look at it more and more, what, what, it, what dawns on me is this. God is telling Isaiah, look, uh, you, you have received me as your Savior and Lord. You have responded to the call uh, of God by committing your life. But he said, let me just tell you, it's not going to be easy. There will be people who will hear what you're saying, but they'll never get it. They will see what you're saying, but they will never really understand it. And in fact, the more that you preach, the more they're not going to see, the more they will refuse to hear, the more their hearts will be hardened so they will not receive it, and therefore they will not be converted, and they will not be healed. And at some point, Isaiah, you're going to keep preaching to these people, and if they continue to turn away from me, what I'm going to do is almost work against you. I'm going to give them exactly what they want. And I'm going to take their hardened heart and I'm going to harden it more. Now, I won't do that right away. But in time, I will. I will give people what they want. I love this chapter. I love this chapter. You see, God revealed to Isaiah there would be a conflict involved in his commitment. But it did not dissuade Isaiah. He did become one of the greatest prophets, if not the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. As we look back from the vantage point of the New Testament. And we see him there in great majesty. And even though people turned away from him, even though people rejected him, even though people didn't listen to what he had to say. This man, Isaiah, still proclaimed the awesome majesty of God and gives us, especially in chapters 52 and 53, the most vivid picture of the crucifixion and the humiliation of our Lord on the cross. I know he didn't have this song. 
But every time I think about Isaiah, I think about this old song that we used to sing in some of the churches I grew up in. When God said, here am I, send me, I can hear Isaiah. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice. And it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith. And be closer drawn to Thee. So draw me nearer and nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to Thy precious bleeding side. Have you been confronted with the Lord lately? Have you felt a conviction over your sin lately? Has there been a time when you have confessed your sin and received the salvation of the Lord? If you haven't, we're about to stand up and sing. And this altar is a place where so many people have been saved. So many people have invited Christ into their lives. And I invite you to do the same. Are you saved? But up to this point, you've thought that God only calls people to be pastors or preachers or ministers. And you haven't really stopped to think about the fact that God's called you. Are you willing to step down here and say, here am I, send me? Even though it may cost you something in conflict. Are you a Christian who needs to grow closer to the Lord? And you know that you need to make a visible commitment here to do that. Are you a person who needs to join this church in order to officially be a member here and and really feel in your heart as as an official part of this church? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Are you willing to say, here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we love your word. We love this call of Isaiah. Lord, we love what you did in his life. Lord, I pray for people here who are a lot like Isaiah was. He was not a person who knew you. And yet in that experience in the temple where he encountered you in a majestic way, Lord, he came to know you. And he confessed his sin. And he entered a relationship with you. And not only that, Lord, but he responded to the call of service. And Lord, I pray for someone to come and receive you as their Savior right here today. I pray for someone who's saved to respond to a call to service. I pray, Lord, for people who have gotten far away from you, Lord, to be able to return to fellowship with you. I pray for people to come And join this church. Lord, I pray that throughout this place, people will raise their hands and say, Lord, I hear you. Hear my, send me. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.